Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. Uh, normally, I do a cold open that sort of relates to my guest in some way. And I normally tell a story. Sometimes it's a couple minutes long. Sometimes it's uh, the length of maybe a Scorsese movie. But today, I just thought because... You're a guy who is from an area of the country that uh, a lot of people don't know a lot of people from there, um, Oklahoma. I thought I'd tell you about one of my first clients I ever uh, represented in my life was a young comedian that I met, um, and he was going to school at Emerson College in Boston, and I was running a comedy club called Play It Again Sam's, and... This was a very interesting place, and I'll explain this, and you'll see how this relates to you in a second. (laughs) So I was doing, I was a young comedian doing open mic nights in Boston, and I was doing really well because you only had to do five minutes, and there weren't that many open micers, and a lot of times these great Boston comedians would come in, they'd do their sets, and then you'd go on after them, then another great boss, so they'd alternate the open micers. And I was having the time of my life, and this comedian, I heard laughing in the back of the room. And I didn't know who he was, but I heard he was really, really an established guy in Boston. And he had this belly laugh every time I would perform. And finally I got up one day, and he took me aside, and he said, 
listen, Barry, uh, how would you like to be the doorman at my comedy club? Uh, you can do the door. I'll pay you $10 a night, and I'll let you do five minutes of comedy at the end of the night after the second show at five minutes of 2 a.m. after four headliners. I'm like, oh, sure, that sounds like a good gig. And his name was Chance Langton. He used to have, he used to be, he was a guitar comedian, but he did stand-up beforehand. He used to have this song uh, that he used to do, uh, all I am saying is give Chance a piece. You know, he would say that to the girls, and he would have all these different things that he would do, and this catchphrase was always, shut up. You know, he'd always have this thing that in Boston they have a catchphrase, you know, and down south it's, you come back, y'all. You know, uh, in California, what's happening? And uh, I'm from New England. Our motto is, shut up. And and so he gave me the gig uh, doing the door, and I would go on at five minutes of two after all these headliners like Stephen Wright and Lenny Clark and just these powerful, powerful acts. Um, and sometimes I would bomb, sometimes I would do well. And then the owner of the place, who was this crazy guy uh, named Tom Maloney, it was a place called Play It Again Sam's. What was fascinating about this place is it was a primarily a movie bar. So this is before DVD, before uh, video, anything like that. And so in order to see a movie, you'd have to see it in a dollar movie house or whatever. But he came up with a brilliant idea. He was going to rent movies. And he was going to put them in this big area of the, um, whatever, the the nightclub or bar or whatever you call it, with couches and everything. And so you could see, like, movies that just came off the theater there. And it would be a huge thing. They'd have a restaurant, a bar with a guy singing folk music. And downstairs was the comedy club. So after I started doing this, he fires Chance Langton. And he comes to me and he says, Barry, I'll give you $200 cash. I want you to book the place and do whatever and, and, and make it all happen. And I said, uh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And I, I put Bob Goldthwaite in on Wednesdays, Dennis Leary on Thursdays, um, as well as Dana Gould on Fridays was a guy named DJ Hazard. And uh, Saturdays was Lenny Clark from Rescue Me. And Sunday, I had a comedy team called Zito and Bean. And then after they left, I had a young comic from Emerson, Anthony Clark, come in, who was my one of my first clients ever. And he had this incredible energy and amazing stuff. But he was from the South, and I never was really exposed to comedians from the south and you know neither was anybody from boston so there was this thing about that accent or whatever it was that it, it in comedy was like an accelerator you know like when i don't know there's just something about jeff boxworthy when he says you know you know you're a redneck when your working television sits on top of your non-working television and you're like the joke itself is funny and it will always be funny but for everybody listening out there, if, if you're seeing uh, comedy is a, a unique thing in that you respect the people who can go up and just tell a joke and, and do it or tell a routine and do it with no character, with no um, 
emphasis on anything. You can't help if somebody's from the South and that's how they talk. That's that's their thing. But they have a natural advantage over other comedians because they have this built-in character that acts like, again, like 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 lighter fuel on a fire. So they always have a bigger advantage over comedians who are telling the same kinds of jokes who don't have that accent. And as you're finding out in some of the shows that you produced, which we'll talk about, America just, it, it's that extra thing that fuels it. A lot of the shows that you worked on, and the one we're going to talk about specifically a lot, uh, Duck Dynasty, it's like, it's not trying to be funny on purpose. You know, when I worked on Last Comic Standing, Peter Engel used to say, we have the only reality show on television that's funny on purpose. But the thing about Anthony Clark, he would kill so hard, and he was just in college, and it was amazing. And there was this one bit he did that was one of my favorite bits of all time that he did, and he ended up doing it on the HBO Young Comedian special. And I thought, for the cold opening, I would play that little segment of that bit for you, and I'm going to do that right now. I just did this whole college tour of Texas and Oklahoma, and let me tell you, if you've never been to Oklahoma, whoo, save your fucking money, because you know who's going to go, it's around. There's nothing there. It's like a state looking for something to be proud of, is what's happening. Their state motto in Oklahoma, I swear to God, they printed right on their license plate, is Oklahoma is okay. Woo! <laughs> gotta wonder what their choices were to come up with that piece of shit. We got our five final choices for the Oklahoma State License Plate Program. Billy Bob, you want to read them all? <laughs> we have A, Oklahoma's okay. <laughs> B, Oklahoma, the circus has been here twice. Oklahoma. Some people say we don't suck. <laughs> D. Oklahoma. Trees are made of wood. <laughs> oh, they are, they are. And E. Oklahoma. Oklahoma. There, I said it twice. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, 
and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Very excited to be here. Uh, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. It's me, Barry Katz, and my first guest, my only guest, my sole guest today, Joe Weinstock. Senior Director of Development at Discovery Channel. Let me talk to you a little bit about what this guy's done. This guy started in Oklahoma, where he got a law degree there at the University of Oklahoma, then decided to give it all up and come to Los Angeles, and he became a business affairs and legal person at Comedy Central in L.A. Then he moved on to uh, Spike TV, where he was there for five years in development and uh, was in charge of doing things like Auction Hunters and Jesse James is a dead man, deadliest warrior, Mansers, Pros versus Joes, DEA, a thousand ways to die. He was involved in some way in all of those shows. And then he moved on to a job at Gurney Productions where he worked on a ton of other shows as well from American Digger, The Monster Man, The Haunted Collector, Hollywood Treasure, American Guns, and of course, the mother load of all, Duck Dynasty. And then recently, uh, about a year ago, he joined Discovery Channel and is now a big head honcho there and is involved in a tremendous, tremendous amount of production and shows, including his newest one, which he's very proud of, called Porter Ridge. Please welcome, if you will, my man, the guest of honor, Joe Weinstock. Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I have so much to talk to you about today. I'm so excited about this. Uh, But I always like to sort of start at the beginning. So you're in Oklahoma. You grow up somewhere in Oklahoma. Who knows, uh, you know, uh, I've never grown up in Oklahoma, so I don't know what that's like. So what happens when you're growing up to get you to the point where you say to yourself, hey, you know, I want to be in the entertainment business or I want to be in some format of this business? Well, there were a lot of cows and chickens and horses <laughs> um, that I had to get past um, in all seriousness. Um, so I, I used to practice law. Uh, I was a trial uh, attorney. Why do they say um, practice law and I, practice medicine? I These are the two things you can't fuck up at. I would say you practice it because you can never be as the best. I, I don't know. I think you're always learning something in, in, in that particular um, um, facet of education. Like you're always you're required to take CLEs, continuing learning education, to make sure that you're on the top. You're continuing to learn what's new and out there. And I, I, I don't know, I, it sounds also uh, smarter. I feel smarter. I'm practicing law. Um, I just sound cooler. Um, so 
I was practicing law, um, and I ended up being uh, uh, moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was at a, a pretty large size firm uh, specializing in medical malpractice defense and bad faith and had cut my teeth on car accident cases. I would, you know, one of the things I would be, you know, I, I was pretty good at was cross-examining chiropractors. But is uh, this what you wanted? Like, is this when you were growing up in Oklahoma? Like, not at I all. want to cross-examine this. Not at all. Like, uh, I, I like. I, what did you want I, back I, then? I, I, I wasn't sure. Like, I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm good at it. I like it, but I don't love it. And I felt like there was something always missing. And you know, from 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 like college, the only thing I learned in college was social skills. And I thought I, I I mastered that. Like, I didn't learn anything else in college. And I was like, I love college. What else can I do? I don't want to grow up. There's law school. I could you know I could party three more years and <laughs> and not have to grow up. Were you a big partier back then? Um, I, I had fun. Uh, I You know, yes, I, I probably partied a little bit too much. But you did not uh, inhale. Uh, did not inhale. Uh, and, you know, obviously was able to pass the bar exam, so uh, I listened just enough. Um, and you, you take the bar exam not to get an A, but to, to pass it. And I think that's how, you know, that was my mindset going into it. Uh, but the short of it was is that I felt like there was I was missing out on something, and I felt like I needed to have that opportunity and take a chance. Um, and move out to Los Angeles and see what it would have to offer. I remember exactly, I was sitting in, you know, outside my house in Tulsa in my truck calling a buddy of mine that, that had, you know, he, was, he had the, the wherewithal to move out to uh, L.A. after he graduated college, and he was acting and was doing okay. You know, he was in some national commercials and some, some TV shows, and, you know, it was really, we thought it was a big deal in Oklahoma. We thought he had made it. But now coming out here, we realize, I realize how difficult that particular industry is, probably the hardest in the world. Um, short of it was I called my buddy and said, hey, I'm moving out to L.A., he didn't believe me. Um, Wait, so you, you you have a job in Oklahoma. Yes. You're getting paid pretty well. Yep. Did you grow up poor or did, did you? No, mi- uh, very, very uh, uh, middle class. Middle class. Yeah. But you, you were out on your own and yes. you weren't relying on your parents anymore. Correct. You had a job. Mm-hmm. You were successful at it. Mm-hmm. They liked you. Mm-hmm. You were getting paid. You were getting some women. <laughs> and, no, and, no, and no. Th- I and, didn't say that. And then... And then you just decide mm-hmm. to pick up and move and quit your job. Yeah, it was uh, it was an epiphany. It's without without any yes, everyone thing thought out I here. was crazy. My dad was like, you, you know, he's he's a Long Islander. Somehow, I grew up in Oklahoma, born and raised. Uh, business brought him out there, and, and he's remained there. Um, but uh, he, you know, he saw the you know the potential I could have in Oklahoma. But at the same time, I knew that I had to take a chance, and I, I would always regret it if I didn't move out here. Um, and not try to do something. And, and I prefaced my move. I told the partners. It was on the eve before the biggest trial that I was ever going to do, and I was second chair. We ended up losing that trial. Uh, I thought I'd get a, a, a lot of extra money in my pocket before leaving, uh, which that stunk. Uh, but I, I, So when you – not to digress, sure. but when you're a lawyer, when you win a case and the firm makes a lot of money, you're bonused. When you lose, you don't make anything. Yeah, and you don't necessarily get bonused, but – it was a you know a case I was involved in from the outset and felt like you know we had a, a pretty pretty strong case uh, and looking to change some law in in the insurance side of things and you know it was very disappointing because we you know our client lost out and you know that particular client was bankrupt um, not to get into all that but you know it was had you made your decision before the uh jury decided one way or the other you were coming to LA yeah I I told I told the 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 partners at that firm that I was going to leave uh like 
three or four days before the, the case. I was like, I'm going to, oh, you know, I'm going to give everything in this case. I'm going to do whatever I can, but at the end I'm going to leave. And, um, yeah, everyone thought I was pretty crazy. Wow. And so you come to L.A., and do you get an apartment? Do you get a hotel? Like, are you living in your car? Like, what, yeah. did you drive here? How did I, you do it? I did. Uh, I, uh, I, I attached a U-Haul to my truck. I convinced one of my uh, best friends from uh, grade school that was living in um, Colorado just getting stoned every day. I was like, hey, man. I was like, I'm moving to L.A. Why don't you move out there with me? You're not doing anything. Let's do this. Um, didn't take much convincing. He agreed. And so we met in L.A., and we both crashed at another buddy's uh, pad when we first got there and literally got an apartment the next day. And where was your apartment here in Los Angeles? Uh, it was uh, it was in Santa Monica, um, off of Santa Monica and Yale Street. Uh, got it. So it you Near know, 28th or 26th yeah, Street exactly, around there. Yeah, exactly. And there was this bar called Busby's we would go to to eat free. Because they had a happy hour there every day, like in you know we were trying to save bucks and, and you go through money so quickly here. Um, that that was a, that was a wonderful thing. Thank you, Busby's. It's incredible. Alcohol has a unique distinction in every podcast yeah. that I do. Well, here. you just had to buy one beer um, or vodka soda. Uh, I think I was drinking uh, Coors Heavy around that time, uh, <laughs> and now it's paid off considerably. <laughs> I got twenty. I got to lose. Um, you but, got your freshman twenty. Uh, oh my goodness! Uh, I was skinny when I moved out here. Got it. So Anyways, you, you get out here. So oh, that's okay. Don't yeah. worry. We'll talk about weight loss. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so you're you're here. You're you're getting the apartment with your buddy. Yep. Uh, and so, what's your first? Uh, what's your track getting a job here? How do you? What do you? Know, what, do you what kind of job are you trying to get? You know, I, I I wasn't sure. I was like, listen, you know, even I was open to entertainment. I was open to anything. I just wanted to get out here. And I told everyone uh, back in Oklahoma that I'd written a screenplay. Uh, <laughs> just so they wouldn't think I was crazy. And no one understands the business there. I was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's going to be shopped around. And in law school, I did write one, but it wasn't worth a shit. Um, I wrote it um, why I might have been under the influence of marijuana. Uh, <laughs> and it was. What it, was the name of that screenplay? And what was it about? It was called Fifth Year. And it was uh, about five best friends in their fifth year of college, um, you know, going through the trials and tribulations of growing up. You know, to me, I, I wrote what I knew about um, and wrote about characters that I loved. Um, When's the last time you read that from start to finish? Holy crap. Uh, ten, years. ten years. Ten years. It's okay. tucked away somewhere. I would like to take it back out. You've got to blow uh, the dust yeah. off that right. and go hey, back would out. You, would you it. take a read? I would, of course. For you, I'd do anything. <laughs> it's I not would. good. Don't worry about it. Uh, oh, and then uh, so I used that as, as my impetus and, and my excuse for people to not to think I was too crazy. My dad obviously saw right through it. But in the end, he supported me. Um, and, you know, he couldn't be happy for me now. And he's always pushed me. And the thing is, is, like, I don't want to have regrets. And you have to take chances. You have to take chances in this business. Like, I, I'm not a guy that just goes with the flow. I, you know, I, I'd rather take the chance um, than not know and, 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 and just do more of the same. So how do you get a job here? What's your first job here in Los Angeles? I, I worked at Houston's waiting table for a week. <laughs> uh, like, like, again, like, I, I, I you know, um, it w I needed to make money a ASAP. And, but then I was like, I can't do this. Like, there's no way. Uh, and the short of it is I had a, a BS job for a company, like director of corporate development for a company where I taught doctors how to speak in front of, in front of groups. Um, during that, that year while I was here, um, one of my buddies w was working at MTV, and he introduced me to the HR director at MTV, and, um, you know, we hit it off very well. She was super, super nice, and she called me up um, two weeks after we had met. Um, you know, I passed on my, my resume, whatever it was, 
and she said, hey, I want you to come interview for uh, a temp position at Comedy Central's Business and Legal Affairs. And, you know, just so you guys know, uh, and I've probably done, I would say probably 25 deals at Comedy Central, maybe 50. And one of the things that always fascinated me about Comedy Central throughout the years is there was this is a multi-million dollar company and the business affairs department was like one or two people like it was like one person in la one person in new york i think it was janice jackson or janice yeah i remember her name i remember that and name. and there was another person in la whose name jim is, sharp well jim wasn't was he business affairs yeah yeah he's business i affairs. never knew him as business affairs he's, he's a creative <laughs> uh, executive there now but it was always like this department that was so overwhelmed and they just had so many deals and everything took so long and so much time to get answers and things. And I thought to myself, this is because that was one of the first companies I really did a lot of business with. And then I realized that every single company in this town has a business affairs department or person who is completely overwhelmed and taxed and can never get anything done in a timely fashion and i don't know why networks spend less money and less resources on something to move the machinery forward and i never understood that philosophy and and uh, since you were temping and you were in the middle of machinery to start off and you're mm -hmm. going to say how that continued mm -hmm. what is the reason for that in your mind wow uh i i think uh Ah, that's a tough question to answer. I, I think it varies from network to network, but you're saying this is something that you see across the board with all networks. Um, well, for instance, now where you're at at uh, Discovery, how many business affairs people do you have doing deals? We have quite a few. We, ha we have quite a few. And, and, and the thing is, I, I, you know, at Discovery, um, I, I, I feel like we are service very, very well. Um, and if there's time, uh, time exigencies that we have to hit or, or deadlines, you know, we flag them. Uh, we let them know like this is this this is hot this still needs to be done quick you know we want to we want to get in pre-pro in, in three or four weeks or you know the talent you know someone else is circling them we need to move fast like so this I, is I, one of the things about the legal profession and you're going to talk more about this before we get into the thing uh-oh this is something i want you to and anybody listening here uh this applies to any kind of law or any kind of negotiation what happens when you're doing a deal in this town is is you'll you'll take a meeting or meetings or whatever it may be and the people you're pitching to or you're pitching your idea whether it be a screenplay a television show a documentary whatever it is you're going and basically you're a salesperson you're going in and you're trying to convince people who have a checkbook to open the vault and write a check for whatever amount of money that you feel you can accept for whatever your services might be, whether you're an artist or a producer or director or writer or whatever. And so what happens is when the network, let's just say it's a network, decides, hey, we want to do a deal with you, then the first thing that happens is, is that their business affairs person will either call your lawyer or, or, or if you don't have a lawyer yourself, or they'll email you a short-form proposal. Mm-hmm. And so you'll get the proposal, and then you'll make notes on it, and then you'll email it back to them. Mm -hmm. And then they'll take another week or two or three or seven and email you their notes back. And it's this draft that keeps going back and forth. It's called a red line copy for our audience that doesn't know the side of the business. You take a Word document. You can 
you can uh, use a certain uh, technique on the on the bar, which allows you to review and redline every comment you make goes in a different color, and it's back and forth. And I worked on deals where literally I finished a film, and the deal still wasn't done. That's scary. And uh, well, thankfully it wasn't my risk. But yeah, exactly. Um, but the point being is I never understood why there's not a process where literally you're like, okay, we want to make a deal with you. You got to commit eight hours right now. You're going to come into the office with your lawyer. And by the end of the day, we are going to either have a deal or we're not going to have a deal. And then you just move on. But that never happens. Why don't lawyers just get in a room like divorce lawyers or arbitrators and just do it and get it done? I think that's a damn good idea. um, You know, people are so accustomed to doing business the same way, uh, and they have relationships with the same people. um, And I, you know, not to think that people want to drum up, uh, you know, for 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 our people like saying from the network side of things, they're going to get paid the same amount. Now, on the other side of things, it, it might be, you know, an hourly rate, um, and that's just how they're accustomed to doing it. And, and I'm not saying that they try to bleed it or milk it. Um, hopefully that's not the case, uh, but I, I think it's just tradition. Um, I think looking at how slow things can take sometimes, that, that we should look at doing things outside the box, and why not try it? On a case by case basis, try you know take X and let's just try X and see how see how that does. I, I think that's a great idea and something we should explore. Um, uh, all in all, for me, my experiences with business and legal affairs has been has been pretty darn good um, from both sides of the table. Although um, I will say that um, when I was at Gurney Productions, you know uh, you know sometimes things were you know I felt like you know why can't um, X just reach out and just call. Rather than just email, why don't you just hmm. call that person and let's just lie. I'll call that person. Let's just get it done because yeah. we need to get it done today because we want to go out and shoot tomorrow. I'm sure you probably did do that. So anyway, so you're temping at uh, Viacom Comedy Central, yep. whatever it be. Yep. And uh, and so um, what happens then? Um, I then met uh, Tim Duffy. Uh, Tim, Duffy. Tim Duffy, of course, it's, yeah. is now it's. I don't what? know. He was at Spike yeah, TV. A, yeah, he he was at Spike. Um, just left and started his own production company with his twin brother called Ugly Brother. <laughs> uh, and you and, and it's funny, like you're like who's who's the Ugly Brother? I think it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nice uh, icebreaker for people to ask uh, uh, ask them about the the genesis of of the name of the production company, which I always find fascinating, like names of people's production companies. Um, I remember. Uh, of course, I remember your name going, you know, on several deals. Uh, but I, I, I remember one from, uh, you know, not to digress. But you burned and you no, ripped no, up no, and no, no. I, I peed on them in the trash can. Smoke, uh, <laughs> smoke Mary Jana. Yes, yes, I did. What did you say, Mary? What was Marijuana. Marijuana. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, no, I, I remember, and, and I might be wrong remembering this, but I remember uh, a deal that I was uh, redlining. Uh, like uh, from Sarah Silverman, and I think the name of her production company was like 11, 11, 11 Productions or something like that. I was like, oh, make a wish. Maybe it wasn't hers, and I might be misspeaking or misremembering. But I was like, I was like, man, I love, I love that. What would be my name of my production company? But not to digress. So uh, how did you get from a temp to the next so, level? So I met Tim, and I'm and I'm seeing him take these pitches, and you know I'm pitching him in the kitchen, you know, very ignorant and naive. 
I'm like, I know what Spike wants. I, they want this. And, and, and I'm like, how do I get hey, to Hey, Tim, this? I got this great screenplay about the <laughs> yeah. five years. Yes, you should totally do fifth year, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the reality show. Uh, but the, the, uh, the short of it was um, I befriended him, and, and they, him and Sharon Levy, who was his Sharon boss. Sharon Levy was, was the was, head of yeah, Spike and, and, uh, Development yep, Production. And, and she still is. Um, uh, and I was like, how do I get to do what you're doing? Um, and he's like, well, uh, you got to start all over, brother. He's like, you have to be an assistant, and you got to get it. You got to get that job. Like it's, you know, he's like, it's very difficult to even get in the in, in the in the the window of opportunity. Short of it was they were going, you know, they had just kind of set up there. They were going through a few assistants. They hadn't landed on somebody somebody they loved. Um, I had an opportunity to uh, meet with Sharon and Tim. Sharon, so Tim got me in the door. I met with Sharon. Um, and Sharon know, is wonderful and like yeah. this full-on incredible uh, person that yes. I, I just revere. She, uh, she can beat up a lot of dudes. She um, certainly can. Yeah. She is uh, type AAA, but just still has that really wink. loving wink yeah. that she has that uh, just makes it all, you know, that it's it's not all that way. It's, that's right. That's right. Um, so... I got the job, and I was like, "This is an opportunity that I." I and can't you were her assistant, so I was her and Sharon, uh, Tim's assistant. So I, wow. I was, and they shared an assistant at, at that time. And I had this n- lets you know everybody who's listening. Okay, you have a network that's broadcasting the millions and millions of people, <laughs> and you got the two most important people of the company sharing an assistant. They can't afford the extra twenty-seven thousand five hundred or thirty-two thousand six hundred dollars to do it. Putting it on the screen, baby. Putting it all on the screen. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, you know, that was uh, it. Was very humbling. Um, I, I you get some. Did Sharon throw a stapler at you or something? No, she never did. Okay, uh, but uh, but two weeks in, I, I, I was first of all, I didn't know what rolling a call meant. I didn't know what a BlackBerry was. This is how naive I Why was. Why don't you tell our audience I, what rolling a call means? Because maybe a lot of them don't know. Well, rolling a call is so if your boss um, needs you to make some phone calls for him, whether your boss is in their office or on, in a car or somewhere else, um, they want you to make phone calls for them. So you would make a phone call to someone that you needed that might be on their call sheet. And so, hey, can you call back uh, Bob Bobby? Uh, <laughs> sure, hold on. And so I would call Bob Bobby's office and then say, uh, I have Sharon Levy for uh, Bob, Bob Bobby. Bobby. Hold, please. And I would wait and wait. And if Bob got on the phone, then I'd hit the conference button and connect him. Hey, Sharon, you're on with Bobby. Go ahead. And then you know, you'd stay on the phone line and, and take notes. And, you know, I think that was one of the better learning processes It's unbelievable I had. what it is. A lot of executives uh, let their assistants listen on every call. And that's how you learn so much about the business. So important. And it's really important. What's weird is, I, you know, here in the office, you know, uh, Sarah, who's uh, my produ- one of my producers here, who also Hi, Sarah. has at times in the past uh, uh, assisted me on, on many things. I don't even remember the kind. I'm not the kind of guy who rolls calls, am I? I am the she's kind. Not of, she's yes. not. Yes. Okay. And she also did not. She's like uh, when he he brought up the stapler. She was not in her head. <laughs> Like like that might have happened to her, which we should get into later. I might be interviewing you about the stapler. Oh my just god! Saying. No, I, I don't see that at all. Uh, no, I, I'm with you on that. Like I make my own phone calls. I think it's really important to at you know rather than I I just I love making my own phone calls unless I'm so darn busy or if you're you're uh, you know in a car and you want to be hands free then maybe that's the opportunity. But I, I like that personal touch. I think it's just you know I I love when another executive answers their own phone. Like okay. I'm like, hey, you're one of me. That's cool. So you're so it, so it's pretty humbling. And so oh, how yes. do you move up there? 
Um, well, I, I think this is important for anyone that might be listening um, that's looking to break into business. Like two weeks in, um, I was ready to quit. I was like, I can't handle this. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what TV was. Um, you know, it was very, very overwhelming. And um, I remember Duffy coming in um, and sitting down with me. He's like, hey, man. I was like, dude, I was like, maybe I should go do law. Like, this seems a lot, you know, that should be a lot easier. And he's like, man, he, he put it in a little perspective. He's like, he's like, you ain't saving lives. You're just making TV. The next morning I woke up and literally, like, I, I just got it. You know, I was like, I'm not going to stress about the small shit. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do the job the best that I can, better than anybody that I, you know, that, that I, I'd like to thank that and just hustle. Um, and, and that's what I did. And, you know, when Sharon would get cuts um, of shows in or if there's opportunities she'd be on set, you know my ass was going out there. Where you know I was giving her notes that she didn't want to see, but I'd jam them down her throat anyway just so I could get practice. Um, and, you know, she kept promoting me. And Do you remember the first time you, you gave her a suggestion on something? Yes. And tell me the first time you gave her a suggestion on something and she looked at you like she wanted to fucking kill you. And tell me the first time you gave her a suggestion and she looked at you and she said, <laughs> that's that's a great suggestion. I, I, uh, I you know I don't remember that one, uh, but I, <laughs> I, I I do remember like giving some notes on this show that we did with the Jay and Tony show called Raising the Roofs. Now um, Jay and Tony are the two guys. They did Tourgasm with me, right? They yeah. have the logo with the duck on it. What's their last exactly. names? Jay and uh, Blumenfeld and Marsh. That's right. Yeah, Jew and non-Jew. Yeah, they do uh, they do uh, gigolos for Showtime. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, not with, to with brace. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've never seen it. Only on the soup was when I've seen Got it. I was it. like, oh my god. Uh, but uh, so I sent some notes to Sharon and Tim. Uh, just you know, I sent them, and then I, I got an email from from Duffy like ten minutes later. He's like, moving forward, he's like, just send him some notes to me. So, <laughs> got it. No, did Sharon that I wouldn't send any notes to her directly. Um, it's not that she she well, didn't. Ma, but it could have been Tim wanting to be the man and take the notes and bring them to her. I, I think it was probably just a hierarchy thing, even though I was reporting directly to both of them. Um, that you know, it just the, 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 that the you know the notes process should run through Duffy in, instead of just me sending them to leaving. Let Duffy decide what notes are good or not. Um, and then they started giving me bones. I you know they'd give me a show just to oversee myself, um, and it was trial by fire. I mean, I had no sense of what how TV was made. Even when I left um, Spike, I still needed. I didn't have the worldview of you know what what it takes to get a show made. The sausage. Um, you know, I hadn't had extensive time. Um, in production didn't have really any except when I'd be the the network guy out in the field and you know I was always like uh, I always thought they loved me out there and, and until I went to Gurney and was you know the production company I realized we hated the network being out there like you know yeah. you know just keep them occupied let them do something well you don't want the net you know as a production company you never want the network near you because it's <laughs> like they're going to they, they have to justify their existence so it doesn't matter how great your show is or how bad your show is they're getting paid a salary to come to the set and to make notes and to put their stamp on it so they have power. They have some kind of control. They're writing the check. And there's very few shows that don't have a network executive coming to them. I could pretty much guarantee that uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart is void of any uh, Comedy Central executive there. And if they are there, 
I'm pretty sure they don't talk to John and give him a note after winning 11 Emmys in 13 years. Yeah, I think South Park probably has that same South Park jurisdiction. Too. Yeah. Um, so, so you get promoted to what kind of positions are you getting? You're not an assistant anymore, or you're just yeah. So, um, I, I was promoted four times um, when I was at um, Spike, and I left there as a senior director of. Uh, production and development. Great. So, you know, this is a, a, another thing for our listeners and our audience, which is incredible, is that you're there, you start there, you're there for like five years, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine how many assistants and people came and went, but you navigated and you figured out a way to win. You yeah. figured out a way to befriend the right people, to say the right things, to not be too threatening. And you worked your way through, and you got where you wanted. But why did you leave? You were you were coming up. You were doing really well. You, I mean, there's a lot of different shows you worked on. You worked on uh, the Jesse James show, the Auction Hunters, the Deadliest Warrior, mm-hmm. Pros versus Joes, which was fun. DEA, Mansers, A Thousand Ways to Die. Why? I mean, you did, we're working there on was, a yeah. lot, lot of things. Yeah, why I, would you I, leave? And, and, and many of those shows, I was you know under Sharon or under Tim. Um, or, uh, or got to oversee myself, um, like Auction Hunters or, or uh, Seasons 3, 4, and 5 of Pros versus Joes um, and a couple seasons of Mansers. Um, but I, I hit a plateau. Like, I, I realized that if I wanted to get to where I want, and, you know, my ambitions are different than other people's. Um, you, you felt that you, I needed where you were, experience. you couldn't you couldn't bypass and get to a higher level with that. I, I, pro- I, I probably could have. Um, I felt like I could have, and I was certainly in line for another promotion, you know, the, the end of the, you know, the following year. Um, and I loved working for Sharon and Tim. Like, you know, they, they allowed me to be very hands-on, and I learned so much from them, from the experience. But what I needed was real hands-on production experience. To so how did you decide what you were going to do, and how did that happen, your next move? Um, well, I you know, I became really close with Scott Scott and Deirdre Gurney, the principals of Gurney Productions. And what, what shows were they working on for you at Spike? So that was Auction Hunters. Auction Hunters. And, and at the time... You know, they weren't really known for docu or, you know, soft formats. They they were... Uh, Could you explain to our audience what docu <laughs> and soft formats are in the reality world? Yeah, so uh, like a docu uh, series is basically a, a follow-along of um, individuals doing what they do. Um, you know, you could call it, you could even go you, more finite, you could call it an ocu-follow if you're following individuals that, that uh, you only follow when they're doing their profession. Um we, uh, you know, Auction Hunters, the short of that show, it, it came out, it, it, I think, Storage Wars, um, but, um, you know, more more uh, grounded in, in real. Um, and the soft, uh, to explain the soft. Um. So, soft format. So say, you, you know, and again, you could call Auction Hunters a soft format because it really is a, you know, there's every show was structured the exact same way. Uh, you know, from our Act 1, 2, and 3, uh, we always were going to end Act 1 on a holy shit uh, moment before they uncover All something right, in, in a unit. the holy shit moment. You're talking yeah, my language. Yeah, and then, and then you come back, and then you pay it off, uh, and then, you, you know, it's just it's very regimented from how we tell the story. And this half-hour show? or It was a half-hour show. And so you talk about the—I I know this uh, might be a little stretch here away from what we're talking about, but I think it's important for mm-hmm. the audience. Talk about in a half-hour reality show the different— breaks in the show that are like when when your network talks to gurney productions and says hey listen this is how we need it we need the cold open here we need to come out of the title sequence here this is how much time act one is this Mm -hmm. is how much time act two is how much time act three is then we got our 
credits, then we have a little tag right. here. Could you explain to the audience like how that would how it would work in the, the format for a show, a half hour show yeah, like that? It, it depends um, what network it is because every network depends on you know the total running time for a show. Um, for with commercials, which is around twenty one minutes it, and thirty seconds. Exactly. At at uh, at Spike at the time it was twenty one minutes, and so um, there's guidelines that our production management would provide. Uh, the post departments at production companies so that, that they have to adhere to. Now, creatively, um, you're allowed to bend those rules. Yeah, there's if, normally if, like if a, a two-minute swing either way you can you can exactly. do. So whether you have Act 1 is, let's say, it was supposed to be 7 minutes and 15 seconds and you do it at 9 minutes, then you know the next act has to be a little shorter or do whatever you can exactly. to make it work. Exactly. And so... Um, so and and what were you looking for in a, in a successful show in your mind? What were you looking for to happen, you know, in the cold open that introduced the show before the title sequences? What were you looking at at the end of Act One and Act Act Two to to drive the show forward? Was there something specific that you looked for a moment that just that got people tied in that yeah, you would always look for? I, I think it's really in the formula. Yeah, I think it's really important that you hook the, the audience early. Uh, and then you give them something to come back for at the end, at the end of Act One. That, the, that you you have you give them something that, that they're hanging on to. And many times uh, in the reality space, you, you add on a coming up, um, so so they know what what's gonna you know what's gonna come down the you know the pipe. So we hope that we can you know hook them there and have them come back. But there are also many times where you end on such a high moment in scene that you don't want to give away. Uh, any of the goods and the coming ups, and so you, you, and you feel like that that moment's strong enough to get you out of Act One to, to bring him back to Act Two. Next up on yeah. Duck Dynasty, Willie Robertson brings the screenplay that, fifth year. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that <laughs> particular show doesn't use coming ups. You know, it's it's very you know it's traditional comedy. Yeah, you know that's how that's how it was approached. And we're going to talk about that. So you get so you get to so they they ask to hire you. You don't so you don't leave Spike before you have another job. Yeah, correct. But the thing. And what do they offer you? Oh, uh, they offered me nothing. Uh, peanuts. Uh, no, they they offered me a position to oversee their production and development. Um, and who was doing that then? Um, Scott and Deirdre at the time, like the, you know, um, and and there were some other care, uh, uh, individuals there that that just uh, um, that came up with ideas that that are still there to this day that that are an amazing part of of their uh, formula. Um, but they didn't really have that person. They were they were ready to go to the next level, and so they wouldn't have have to deal with networks all the time. They needed that buffer so they can go out and do what they need to do, and they needed someone just to kind of oversee some things. How many shows did they have on the air then? Oh, I don't know, um, maybe six. Six shows. Seven. Maybe. And so you get there, and and how do you when you're at a company like that? How do you find most of your ideas? I mean, I realize that sometimes you're, you know, at home late at night uh, smoking the marijuana. Not I. Not I. Of I've, course. I've been retired since those days. You don't inhale. Uh, of course. I, I, <laughs> and so, but, but no, I understand. You don't. I could take a drug test now. Thank you. I know. You probably do. They probably have you take no, a drug test. No, they don't. They don't. Um, but you go there and you're like, <laughs> how do you come up with the ideas? Do people bring you the ideas or did you just see a newspaper article on certain things? And there, like, for instance, like, let's just take uh, any uh, you know, Hollywood treasure. Like, how do you? Well, that one was different. That one um, sci-fi gave to us. They just gave um, they it They gave to you. that one to us. It, would already, it already been on air uh, for, I think, a season one and season B. Um, and they they wanted I guess maybe a fresh approach to it. They own the show, 
Um, they knew that we did auction hunters very well. This was also an item-based show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they gave us the opportunity, and we said, yeah, let's always, do it. Always, uh, by the way, always uh, something that's really, really uh, the most flattering thing as a production company or a network executive or anybody is when somebody comes to you and says, um, here, uh, we want to give this to you. It's like the equivalent of so- you just walking down the street and somebody handing you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because when you when somebody comes to you and gives you something as a production company and something our audience, I just want to share with you, because having worked in the insides of a production company, what happens is, is that there's all these line items in a budget. Yep. So in other words, the first thing you have to do when you get the okay from a network is they say, put a budget together for the show. Now, the network knows what they want to spend. They have an idea what they want to spend, but they don't right. tell you exactly <laughs> what they want to spend. Yep. So you're in yep. this situation where you're like, well, give guessing, us a ballpark. You give us a ballpark. So you're want putting this budget together, and on the budget, let's just assume, let's just take any show, or let's just assume Duck Dynasty the first year. Um, they put a budget together, and let's just say it was $250,000 a show. So when you do this automatically, 10% of the $250,000 is a standard um, executive producer production fee that you get as a production company. And then all the line items are your director, your editing, your finishing, your color correcting, music, legal, travel, um, cameras, cameramen, everything. But if you're a production company and you're a smart production company, you own your cameras, you own your editing equipment, uh, you have staff uh, that are on salary. And so you have these line items like on the thing, you know, $5,000 a week for editing. But you have your editing bay, you own your equipment, you have your guy on salary uh, that's going to rent $750 a week for the camera. Well, we own the camera. We, we have it. So as a production company, what happens is, is when somebody gives you a production and it's, let's say it's $250,000, it's very, very feasible to make a minimum of 30% of that in profit. And a maximum, sometimes if you really are great and you own a lot of the equipment, 50% or more. And so when somebody who believes in your work and thinks you're great and says, here, take this show... And that show goes, let's say, 10 episodes or tw- how many episodes did that show go? Uh, it was six one-hours. Six one-hour shows, okay? So they're just basically, at, at worst, the six one-hour shows had to be a million dollars in production budget, and if, even if for a low-level kind of thing like that. And at best, it could have been two, two and a half million. And they just hand it to you because they know you do great work. It doesn't happen in any other profession, I don't think, where you can get that much. And you don't give a kickback, you give nothing. So you're at this place and you're making your impact. You're starting to bring these ideas forward and they're winning. Yeah, Tell me the first idea you came up well, with there that you moved know, forward that you pitched that it, it, it worked. It was actually, you know, to Scott and Deirdre's credit, they had a lot of things brewing already. We came in and, you know, there were a few things that we pitched immediately that were sold. Um, and, and it got us really, really busy uh, to, to the point where uh, my focus ended up just being production. 
uh, and development took, uh, you know, took a little bit of a, a wayside so we could focus on ramping up some specific shows. The very first show that was sold um, was to Spike, actually. The irony, literally, I, I, my last day on, at, at Spike was a Friday. That Monday, uh, the Gurneys and myself went in and, and pitched, <laughs> pitched a show called um, American Digger. Uh, with this wrestler Rick Savage and it's not you know it's not far off when you say like newspapers and clip shows like Scott Gurney he's a genius when it comes to stuff like this and he literally um, he'll hate me for saying this but he was using the restroom going through this uh, this uh, antique magazine which you know we were using a lot as inspirato uh, for auction hunters and other item-based shows Um, he found this column um, that Rick Savage wrote Um, and he contacted Rick Savage, you know, and he's a re- you know wrestlers know how to be in front of camera. Say, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? Um, we wanted we want to do something with you. Um, <clears throat> we took it over to uh, Gern. Uh, we took it over to Spike without any tape, and and Sharon's like, I love it. Let's develop it. So we're like, hell yes. So then you know, Gurney and I went out to um, Virginia um, with uh, some some crew shot a concept tape and then you know we got it greenlit to series um and then you know the rest is history and do you think they how much of it i'm just curious first of all it's nice to know everybody listening out there that literally at your lowest point <laughs> or your highest. lowest point or highest i mean i love using a restroom on the to- on the toilet you can come up with a concept for an idea that will make you millions of dollars it, 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 it's it's truly, truly so amazing. Grab a newspaper, everybody out there listening. <laughs> get yeah, on the toilet. I, I bring magazines home every weekend. Uh, I didn't get to them this weekend. Uh, you know, we had a lot. We of, don't need to talk about yeah, those right. magazines. <laughs> no, 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 no. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't get them to the restroom. Uh, I brought them back to the office because I, I like uh, they bring. You know, they give you great ideas. Really, really good ideas. All right. So let's talk about the mother of all mothers, mm-hmm. Duck Dynasty. Now you gotta share with me. I, I need to know how this whole thing. What's the first thing you heard about this family or this idea or whatever? So, and I just want to share one other thing sure. for the audience. One of the great things that reality shows do is they find an idea or something they like, but they go the extra mile to try to sell it. And what they do is they put a sizzle reel together where they go, they make a deal with the people who they want to do a show with. And they, after they make the deal, they go down with cameras and they take a day or two or three and they start shooting with them and they cut something together that's, you know, three to seven minutes long. So when they go into the network to pitch, they have something really, really special to show them that blows them away. Sort of like a trailer, only it's better and bigger and funnier and more unique or however it is. So go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, No, so the short of it is when I came into Gurney, um, they had already sold uh, Duck Dynasty, and that wasn't the name of it then. I can't remember the name of it at the time, to A&E. Uh, and it had, gone, it had gone through the rounds. I'd actually seen it when I was at Spike. Uh, so you passed on. I didn't pass on it. Uh, Come uh, on. I, I actually, and I can go through emails. Come on. And got, I did share it. Like, I, I was like, I, sent it, I remember sending the email to Levy. I was like, hey, uh, I don't know what the show is, but I fucking love these characters. Uh, you know, and I think I think a lot of networks were also like, love these characters. How can we make this, you know, right for our network? And A and E, to their credit, figured it out. This is uh, what's also amazing when you think about networks and and even uh, production yeah. companies. And it's the same in life when you're when you're thinking about. I mean, even when you're 
going to bars and you're dating and you're wondering, okay, is this the girl for me? Is not the girl for me or whatever it is, or the guy for me or however it is you go. And people don't realize this, but like Cosby, uh, pitched ABC, ABC passed on Cosby, mm-hmm. NBC did Cosby. It made them billions of dollars. Roseanne pitched to NBC. They passed on her. ABC took it. They made millions and millions and billions of dollars or whatever it being. And so you, this this show went around to all the networks, and your boss, Sharon Levy, said, nah, Duck I, Dynasty is a... But not just her, many people, and then other people have passed on shows that she had the vision yep. to take and was were huge for her. Absolutely. So that's what you have to deal with in this thing. Yeah. So go on. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, um, I, and I can't... You know, I, I was literally... Um, like on the fence when I was leaving, when, when that, ca- that tape came in. Um, so I can't, you know, and memory, I don't know if it'll serve me correctly. I'm pretty sure it was bought by the time I'd got to Gurney because right when I got there, we were getting ready to shoot. So Annie bought two half hour pilots. Um, and that's when I came on board. So, and, and when, and when these shows get pitched now, most of the time they ask for a pilot, which is kind of, odd because you went and you did a sizzle reel and you essentially shot a pilot for them in a miniature form well, but then they ask you to go do another one but other networks will look at a, a sizzle reel and they say you know what we're just going to go forward with 10 episodes the, the the actual sizzle reel itself wasn't shot by gurney they used to have a show uh, and still do actually on uh the outdoor channel called duck commander and buck commander uh, footage from that particular show was used obviously non-airable uh to highlight who these guys were um and the rest is history you know the thing was is like we we knew there was a great show there and you know through the 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 trial and process with a and e at the time you know it 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 took us a while to figure out what the show was but we knew we had the most dynamic extraordinary characters with these beards and these smarts and in these beautiful women that supported them um, so you do a pilot, and they. How did you feel the pilot looked? I, I you know, uh, um, our uh, so it was two half-hour pilots. I thought they were pretty good. You did two half-hour pilots. Mm-hmm. Why two half-hour pilots? That's that's what the commission was. Is that unusual? No, it's not necessarily unusual. Um, um, I've actually never, uh, to be honest with you, I've yeah. never heard we, of that. We before. at Discovery, we do. We we've done three packs, uh, four packs. No, uh, I've done I've done three. You know, like I did a, sh- a show. Um, uh, God, what was it? True Grime or what was it? Something like that. I forget what it was called, but it was a show for a Discovery ID, and it was a three pack. I, I know that, but I didn't look at it like a pilot three pack. I just said, "Hey, we're gonna do three episodes, and then if they like it, we'll move forward." I didn't yeah. look at it like that. So um, we did them. Um, they were pretty good. You know, we felt like you know we were still trying to find our groove. They were tested. Um, didn't test that great. Uh, but A and E still believed in the show, um, and and ordered. I think it was twelve more half hours before before they. So aired. it doesn't test well, and they still order it. Correct. And many times things test well, and they don't order it. Correct. So somebody had a vision there. Who was that person at A and E? You know, I I'd, I'd have to let A and E speak to that. I don't know exactly who on their end was. You know, Elaine Fontaine Bryant. Um, she was the. She's now at History Channel. It, you know, she was kind of our. Uh, she was the main person that we were talking to. Um, you know, she was probably our biggest cheerleader. Um, so it was probably her and, and, and her boss. Got it. Okay. A few questions about that show. I mean, when you first saw, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) When you first saw it, did you, did you think 
for a moment that this show could be what it is today. No. Um, and by the way, um, you know, I, I'm not the one to thank for Duck Dynasty. It was, a, it was Scott and Deirdre. I want to be very clear. It was, you know, it was their wherewithal and the people that we hired, that I hired, that I brought on board um, to uh, run the show. Um, there's a guy at Gurney now, Mike O'Dare, um, who came on just as a supervising producer, is now the executive producer of the show um, that really had a vision in post. Um, and Scott and Deirdre had had you know had the funny bone because this stuff's very subjective and a lot of a lot of things are are, are, are executed in in particularly this show in, in post um, with the editing you know uh, like it's a different type of show and, and we brought on different types of editors from different type of backgrounds instead of traditional reality um, and the show breathes a lot as well like you don't have wall to wall music like traditionally you have a lot of in reality shows this one you know has stings and accentuates uh moments but has you know has its very own sound um but no um we had no idea how how, we know we believed in the show and first season did okay like you know they spent uh a and e spent millions of dollars to launch it um but uh it it, you know it never really broke out but it but it did well Uh, and they believed in it and, and and then spent more money for season two and season two it just went you know went outside the stratosphere but I don't think that was just because of the money promoting it. I think, again, you're not going to agree with this, but I think you became more involved and there were other executives that you oversee that became more involved, other people that were brought in. The editing became crisper. The storylines became stronger. Um, it became more of a, you could disagree with me, it became more of a scripted sitcom hybrid than it did a reality show. And once you played into that, and once they proved that they could hit their mark with the lines and certain things that you gave them, I'm not saying that you gave them everything, and you'll never admit to this in the show, but there's a lot of stuff from my eyes that I can tell they're being fed and they're doing a great job where most people with the naked eye could never see that they're doing it. And they're turning the show, and you turn the show, or you and other people there mostly other people other people there but i'm going to give you credit because i don't (laughs) i don't care i'm going to give you a little bit of credit for i'm not saying you're a hundred percent of the success of duck dynasty but i'm not saying you're one percent either maybe there's somewhere in between and i don't know what it is i'll take one percent just for bringing on the right people for the show all right i'll give you one percent uh times about 50 anyway so so what you did, what you did, or you and your people, or how you worked it together, you turned the show into a sitcom, and a hybrid sitcom that's incredible and very unique, and really, I've never really seen that kind of thing before. And again, playing to what we talked about before, the Southern thing, it's like lighter fuel. It makes people, you cannot turn it off. You cannot turn anything off. You see these these Boston, they look like Boston Red Sox players right they now. They do, don't they? It's and so do you yeah, a little bit, uh, by the way. I'm never shaving again. You're never shaving uh, well, again. Well, I might. All right, and you're yeah. a St. Louis fan. That's horrible. No, tell me. No, no, I was just re- I'm rooting for St. Louis. Tell me something funny that you remember a story about Cy, you know, because he's this breakout character. Is there something that you because well, he seems to become more and more a part I, of things. I, I think you know what uh, the guys and gals were seeing in post were that he was a potential breakout. 
Um, you know, I, I think you nailed it. Like the extension of reality in comedy, I think is really important in putting them in situations and letting them do their thing, not necessarily feeding them lines, but putting them in situations that make a lot of sense for them and their family. It was just very natural for them to do. Um, and I think because, um, and I don't want to speak for all networks. I'm just speaking generally in comedy. I think when you're not saving lives, when you're, when you're there to entertain individuals and you have an authentic lens uh, or an authentic filter that you 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 put it on. Um, I think people react very strongly, and I think Middle of America also really reacted strongly to, um, you know, the elements of family and religion that are naturally uh, part of that equation of that show and make it very successful. So these guys normally, when you do a deal on a reality show for for people who have never been on television before, you can make a deal with people which is very, very conservative and really little or no money because you don't know what's going to happen. You never know how it's going to be. And so a lot of times you do these deals for people, even though whether they're millionaires or they're not millionaires, it's the money is very, very low for each person on the show. It's just, it's, it's just the way it is. They've never been on television. And, and, and take me through, because in reality, it's a very odd thing. In, in, in scripted shows, when Roseanne or, or, or Brett Butler or Tim Allen or Martin Lawrence or Seinfeld, when they start doing well, the lawyer goes right in and their money, go, like Ray Romano made $40 million the last year of his sitcom, $40 million. And what's ironic is his lawyer... Jonathan Moonbez is the brother of the guy who was negotiating with Les Moonbez at the network. But the oh, fact, yeah. and, but you, they're forty million. They ended up with. Imagine what they started. Imagine what the first round was. You know, to get the forty million because yeah. you always have to start higher. So, this is probably the first time that you've actually been involved in something where a group of people in reality are getting so big, and they're trying to renegotiate they're trying to get more money they're trying to figure out a way to hey listen if the network's making millions of dollars hey share a little taste for us down here how have you dealt with that because that's an unusual thing in reality um well i i'd, I'd left um right before season two started shooting mm -hmm. um and all of that stuff that went on i wasn't a part of so i can't speak to um what i will say is that you know the one thing that people forget about with the robertsons and i think why they're really good TV and so savvy is that they'd been on TV for years because of Duck Commander and Buck Commander on uh, the Outdoor Channel. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, and, and, you know, they produced TV themselves. Like, they just, they had a, a wherewithal uh, about them that not other groups of individuals had. And then, and, you know, and again, just the authenticity of who they are, what they're about. It really, you know, it transformed the TV. Like, it oozes real, even if you put them in situations uh that might not normally exist, but for, you know, we're, we're making a TV show. Not that that happens, but they could naturally do that if they wanted to. So I can't speak to, you know, all of all of that stuff that went on, but, um, you know, it, it is what it is. And, and I, you know, you can understand where they are coming from um, because of what they've done for A&E. They've literally made that, you know, that prime average 
you know, they're, they're you know they're keeping the lights on for sure with that show. Now you're kind Even of a scruffy repeats. guy. Do you get the, the the hot women that they get? The Duck Dynasty. Well, do you, um, do you, do you get the, the, the do beautiful women gravitate the they, guys with beards like you? They do not, and I am married. When you hit a home run, does she grab it and pull it? Oh my goodness! Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, all, right, all right. Yes, she does. Okay. Tell me how you got from Gern, Gurney so, to uh, to the the, so, the position you had Discovery, yeah. where you're like the head honcho there. Uh, and doing, I'm definitely not the head honcho. Well, you're one of the I'm, head no, honchos. I'm, I'm definitely not. Uh, I'm a soldier in the West Coast. You office. are very uh, you are very <laughs> understated. You know no, that I love not, about not, you. Not, you always <laughs> downplay no. everything. It's like it's literally like talking to Bill Belichick after uh, a press conference. It's I, like you know I got the hoodie on too. <laughs> Uh, now I just need to rip these off. Uh, so well played and, and good comparison. Um, no, I. I, uh, I so tell me how that transition happened. From so the short of it is, is that um, you know, uh, production, as you know, it's a grind. You know, you 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 start early, you end late, and you know, I have two little babies at home now, um, and it was a tough decision to leave Gurney. Uh, but I had an opportunity. Um, Discovery had knocked on my door when I was at Spike. Uh, I almost went. I didn't. Um, I stayed a little bit, you know, I stayed longer than ended up going to Gurney. And then, you know, my contract with Gurney was just a year. And I was discussing to sign on for a, a couple more. But I, you know, I asked Scott, I was like, listen, you know, I just, you know, like I need to be home a little more often. Um, I, I, you know, family comes first, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he w and, and I was like, listen, I just want to reach out to Discovery Channel to see if there's still any interest there. And um, turns out there was and um, ended up, you know, with the blessing of the Gurneys to go over to um, Discovery. Um, they ended up hiring me. And uh, it was a guy named Simon Andre, who I'm a big fan of, who actually, ironically, now is overseeing Fox. Um, he's the reason why I'm at Discovery. He's the reason I came. He just to hired. He just got hired as the new reality uh, head at Fox uh, in place of Mike Darnell, who was there for many years and was uh, uh, around when American Idol started. Yes. So, um, so, so that he that... he he went after me. Um, he got me, and you know now I'm here. Uh, I certainly miss not working day to day with Simon, um, but he wanted to pursue other opportunities, and, and you know, and, and he moved back home and started his own production company. Um, but then. Uh, you can't turn down the opportunity to to run, you know, Fox's reality division, and I think he's going to kill it. Uh, but that's the short answer, uh, Simon Andre. Awesome. And and uh, before we move to the final roundup here, at your new position here at Discovery, have you had synergy with your old company Gurney, and have you s bought a show from them or a show from you know whatever? Yeah. Um, so we, it just goes full circle absolutely. with the relationships and how it works time and time again. We, we, we have some great shows. Uh, you know, we have two series right now um, and some others in the works. One actually is called Porter Ridge. Um, it's uh, We aired five episodes um, earlier this year. And, then and there's have, another Porter Ridge offshoot of that, isn't there? Or is it just one Porter Ridge? Just one Porter Ridge. Okay, got it. Um, uh, but new, new episodes premiere after Moonshiners on uh, November 5th, a week from Tuesday. Um, and it's it's like something you've never seen before. It's one of those shows that I think takes some digestion because you're looking at it and you're like, what the fuck is this? Uh, and then you're like, oh, this is pretty damn cool. Um, if you haven't seen, it, I'd love for you to check it out. I will, um, man. I, it's just I, it's just different, man. You know, we our, our main our main guy doesn't wear a shirt. Is Terry Porter, um, and his next door neighbor has. See, if I did that, yeah. that would be a, a big he, big ratings non-starter. Yeah, me too, me too. And he has the best hand in the history of reality. So it's TV. like George Hamilton had a reality show. Yeah, basically. Well, it's not necessarily like that. This is what's uh, fucked up about this town. This is the only <laughs> town in the world where you can become famous for a tan. <laughs> he's not necessarily famous for his. <laughs> Tan, but he, he's the most genuinely 
<laughs> awesome, heartfelt, God-fearing man uh, uh, that that I've had the joy to work with. Um, he's amazing, and you know the characters around him and the world that surrounds him uh, are just water cooler. His next door neighbor has eight domesticated bears, um, which obviously can bring a lot of TV viewers. You know, it just uh, bears are ratings. Yeah, bears uh, are ratings. Yeah, uh, the, Coca-Cola the, polar bears. They're right. ratings. And and so that it's it's a it's a total zag. And I, you know, I'm so proud of it. it. To me, it's like you know, Anchorman. The more I watch it, the better it becomes. I feel like the same with Porter Ridge. And then you know, we have another one that's not announced yet that's going to come out in January. That's more on the nose for Discovery as far as world and characters and re- relatability. Um, that I, I'm really, really excited about. That, that that will make a lot more sense. And but they're two half-hour comedies that you know we're trying. You know, Discovery. You know, I, I think it's really important that men laugh and come to your network to uh, to laugh. For us, it's trying to figure out the best way to do that, and and I love that, you know the, uh, you know Eileen O'Neill, who's the president of our network, you know she's she's swinging for the fences and allowing us to take these chances and trying to build, uh, you know some some comedy nights on our air. Well, she's got you, and uh, you always swing for the fences, so that's Thank important. You. So, all right, let's talk about some holy shit moments. Give me one moment in your career just one story one thing having to do with anything that nobody knows that would be like the highlight chapter of your book just like no one would believe it or it's crazy or something unique or special as we wind down here oh i don't i don't you know the thing is you get so sanitized with our business now like when you first came here you'd always be like holy shit it's so and so (laughs) um i I will uh, allow you to make fun of me once um uh, so when I was at Spike, um, I was, uh, you know, at the time they still had script and now they're coming back to it. Um, I was sitting in my office and then I see uh, these sideburns go right across. And I'm like, wait a second, who is that? Um, and I realized, um, you know, when I when I grew up, I used to love 90210. Um, and um, Dylan from 90210 happened to be <laughs> pitching a scripted show. Uh, and I, that was my holy shit. I got to get a picture with this guy. <laughs> I love him. Uh, uh, I didn't get a picture, uh, but I did get to chat with him for a little bit. Awesome. Well, yeah. that is a very, very unique. Uh, um, I, I, I had it so bad. I wasn't expecting so that. Awesome. I would say uh, that that has to be probably of all our worst. episodes the worst holy shit moment <laughs> in the history of industry standard. Uh, and, and thank yeah. you for carrying uh, that banner. Yeah, I, I am. I, when it comes to uh, weak sauce holy shit moments, I keep those very private. Um, Got it. Well, uh, but I gave you an embarrassing one at least. Well, that was good. Tell but me. That's why I had sideburns in high school. Thank you, Dylan. <laughs> all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me uh, your biggest failure in the business. Wow. Okay. Um, I would say my biggest disappointment would be a show um, that I, we did at Gurney for Discovery Channel um, called Raging Cajuns. Some of the greatest damn characters that I've ever worked or been come across. Um, it was uh, based in uh, Louisiana uh, and about these... Uh, shrimp captains you know I, I think the mistake that we made for that show because we are the home of deadliest catch like anytime you have shows that are on water you're going to get that comparison um and we certainly got that comparison and we didn't make a great show in the field i think um from a staffing standpoint i, I might have made a few decisions uh, bad decisions but also from a creative standpoint uh, we should have had more land-based stories and really um you know soaked up the culture that surrounds the uh, shrimping community as, as opposed to a shrimping show, which is kind of boring. Um, you know, one of our uh, characters in that show actually had a domesticated raccoon. 
I mean, that's good fucking TV. <laughs> uh, no one ever saw Polar that. Polar bears, yeah. raccoons. Uh, yeah, and his name was Blimp. Uh, but anyways. All right, um, your proudest moment professionally. Uh, proudest moment professionally. Um, I, I think it's, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be lame again. I don't, uh, you know, I'm still striving. It's the same moment with uh, the guy uh, from 90210. Uh, it's his proudest moment. I'm still striving. Um, I, I really hope, you know, I, Porter Ridge is a show that I feel really, really proud of. Um, and I hope that it catches on with this back seven episodes. I know that, uh, you know, again, Eileen O'Neill, who's, a, who runs our, our network, um, you know, she believes in the show. Uh, you know, the whole network believes in the show. And, and I hope that, you know, now with the opportunity out, you know, leading out of Moonshiners, that people find it and stick with it because it's just something completely different. And what's great is that what's rare about your network is that you they allow the executives to executive produce the shows and also work on them creatively, which is very rare for a network mm-hmm. to do. That that rarely happens. You didn't see Tim Duffy getting an executive producer credit <laughs> on anything. Uh, or, uh, no. uh, oh wow, Tim Duffy is amazing. No, I'm just oh. no, it, no, it, no. It was I'm just talking yeah, about no. the network. It has nothing to do with yeah, Tim you Duffy. Get, you get like on, on that side of things, you get an EIC credit, executive in charge. No, I know, but um, yeah, they give you EP credits at Discovery, which is really cool. You know, we dig in and we get dirty, and it's the with, highest with the level of credit you can get on television. All right. So Besides awesome. <laughs> the last question I have for you is a two-part question. Um, uh, what advice would you give to a um, somebody out there who wants to be in the executive side of the business development or network side of the business, and they're just somewhere in Oklahoma living in a studio apartment, wondering what they're going to do with their lives? How do they get to the point where you've gotten – and then what advice do you have for not only people who have like something that they feel could be a great reality show for themselves personally on camera or an artist that is trying to make it and get up to the point where they can be on camera and get to the next level and move the needle? What advice do you have for them? Okay, I'll take the second one first. Um, I think... You know, if you have, you think you have uh, the next greatest sliced cheese uh, um, or cheese sandwich or bread, which all sounds good. I had some of that this weekend. Um, is to attack, you know, to hustle, and this goes into the second part of, you know, the second uh, response to your first question is to, you know, uh, research production companies on TV shows that you love that you feel like might have some type of the inherent similarities or appeal or how you believe in the particular show like look who look who uh oversees uh or who gets executive producer or production credit and cold call those individuals or find a way to, to communicate them you know what's funny about this and why i know this works is because um with porter ridge for example bear man you know the guy that owns eight domesticated bears you know he he's like uh, he, <laughs> he he loved duck dynasty and he's like oh scott gurney produces duck dynasty cold emails scott and scott gets hundreds of emails literally scott's like okay what is this responds to his email looks at it and it's a show about this guy dirty andy who's in the show but it's like can't do a show about dirty andy but i like him what else you got well and they start talking you know two weeks later scott sends out a film or a crew out there uh shoots us you know a concept tape we get eyes on it and you know the rest is history so it's about hustling and believing in what you have and making sure people have the opportunity to see it now if you are joe schmo out in oklahoma city and you're wanting to make it big, or you're Joe Schmo out in L.A. and you moved out here. Again, it's 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 networking. I think networking is so important. Is is finding 
opportunities to meet individuals uh starting on a desk like like take get just get rid of fucking pride and say if you got to do it you got to do it i did it and i was like you know what if this is how i got to get in the business i'll fucking suck it up and i'll be someone's assistant because i'm gonna have other opportunities because i'm gonna work harder than everybody else and that's the thing like uh you have to be able to um you know grind um keep a positive attitude i think positivity is so important in any equation um you know life's too short and uh, if you hustle, if you work hard, if you open doors, don't wait on the doors to open for you, um, things will happen. So that's the short. Wow. That was incredible. This has been Thank you. an honor. Yes. I am Actually, so it's been an honor. Thank you, Barry. grateful. Thank you for coming. You're this has been fancy. so fantastic. You know you are. Um, you just heard another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show... Tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs>